Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge, whether you're watching on TV, online, or whether you're joining us from our Webster campus or right here at our Rochester campus. We are so glad to have you here today. My name is Jason DeGraff, and I serve on staff as one of our pastors. Now, from as long as I can remember, I have struggled with what people think about me. I I was the hyperactive kid that wanted so badly to be liked by people that I would annoy them instead of draw them to myself. And And if I didn't know what to wear, I hoped that maybe my athletic ability could make up for that. Or if that wasn't enough, I hoped that my musical abilities might impress. I remember heading off to college about 2,000 miles away from home. I had graduated from a large high school with about 550 students in my graduating class, and I went to this small Christian college with a total student body of 400 students. And so it didn't take too long to get to know everyone on campus and for people to get to know you. And it also didn't take too long to identify uh, that girl or that, that guy that you'd be interested in. And I remember my first week of my freshman year of college, I went out on this freshman outing and we were in a 12-passenger van heading back to the college campus and I was sitting next to this girl and I wanted so badly for her to like me that I started to list off all these things that I thought I was good at. <laughs> yeah, I realized in that moment how foolish I looked. Now, growing up can be hard. Someone once said when you're in your 20s that you live to please other people. When you're in your 40s, then you get tired of trying to please other people. And then when you hit your 60s, well, you realize that no one was thinking about you anyways, right? (laughs) Well, I just turned 40 this past year, and yet... Uh, The desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be liked by others is still something that I battle with. And and social media has made that even more complicated. I have a a love-hate relationship with social media. It's a great place to connect with new friends, to reconnect with old friends, to, to share my life with my family. And yet it's hard to spend one minute on my news feed without comparing my life to others. And while social media can be a great place to have people to get to know you, to to share about the things that you care about, it can very easily drift into a humble brag or a way to prove to other people that you have made it. And and it's one thing for us to, to share a picture of a perfectly cooked steak on social media, but if we're honest, I think we care a lot more about what people think about our character than our cooking And when you throw your faith into the picture, I think we would all hope that people would admire us for our commitment to follow God. So if you're sitting down and you're reading your Bible for the first time in a week, and you find the truth from the Bible particularly powerful or convicting, then maybe you want to share that moment with others. But here's the tension. If you are to share about that that scripture verse or that moment you had with God, Would it do more to point people toward God or to draw attention to how godly of a person you are? When my kids recite a truth from the Bible or they sing a song about Jesus, I want to share that moment with others. But here's the question. Do I want to do that so that people can see what God is doing in my kid's life? Or do I want them to notice what a great parent I am? I think if we are honest, Uh, often our motives are mixed. We want to inspire 
faith in others, but we also hope that people would think highly of us. One pastor, John Ortberg, calls this approval addiction. So think about your relationships, your relationship with your parents, uh, your co-workers, uh, maybe your, your childhood friend or your college roommate, your old boss, your new boss, your ex-wife, your extended family. I think we all desire to prove ourselves, whether it's financially or materially, socially, physically, uh, and even spiritually. We hope that people will see how well we have done. And it's this desire that Jesus addresses in our next portion of the Sermon on the Mount. So today we're jumping into week six of an 11-week series going through Jesus' most famous sermon. It's found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters five through seven. And in this sermon, Jesus' sermon, he shares with the crowd what it's like to be people of his kingdom. Jesus' mission was to bring heaven to earth, to restore a broken world, to unite those who are far from God, to have peace with God. And in this sermon, he lays out for his followers what it would look like for us to, his, to expand his kingdom. His sermon is all about God's kingdom, not ours. And he reminds us of that once again in this passage. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles at Northridge, that is on page 787. And today we're gonna look at the first 18 verses of this passage. And in verse one of this passage, Jesus summarizes the main point of the next 18 verses. So let's take a look at verse one. He says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So, so right here in this very first verse, Jesus addresses our struggle with approval addiction. Now maybe you'd say, I, I don't wanna be famous, but I, feel, I still think we want people to like us. We want people to think well of us. And in this context, Jesus addresses our, our specific desire for people to notice our faith. He confronts the temptation for us to serve God for our recognition rather than his own. So to summarize Jesus' main point in verse one and this whole passage, I would say this. And this is the big idea behind today's sermon, that we are to practice our faith for the praise of God, not man. So, so where does the passage say that? Let me show you. In this passage, Jesus shares three primary spiritual disciplines practiced by the Jews of his day, which were to give to the needy, to pray, and to fast. And according to rabbinic teaching, this was not just uh, a, a random list of spiritual disciplines. These were the three primary ways that Jews and early followers of Jesus practiced their faith. And yet the point of this passage is not how or that we are to do these three things, but that we are not to do them to be seen by others. And Jesus doesn't just make this point in verse one, he repeats it again and again in the next 18 verses as he talks about each of these three practices. So let's take a look at the consistent language that Jesus uses in this passage. There are three points that Jesus repeats, and the first one is this. Don't be like 
the hypocrites who want to be seen. So look at verse two. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Why? To be honored by others. Verse five, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces. Why? Again, to show others they are fasting. The second thing he repeats is that if you want men's praise, that is the only reward that you'll get. In verse two, five, and 16, Jesus says the exact same phrase. He says, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Jesus' main point here is that if you want the praise of men, then you can get it. But that's all the praise you're gonna get. You will receive no reward from God. Again, in verse one, he said, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. John Piper summarizes this by saying, the danger of hypocrisy is that it is so successful. It aims for the praise of men and it succeeds, but that is all. The third thing that Jesus repeats in this passage is that God rewards what you do in secret. Again, verse three, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. In verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Why? Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The main point of this passage is not how to give or how to pray or how to fast. But the point is that we are to practice, practice our faith for the praise of God and not man. Or, or another way of saying it is that our faith should be oriented toward God, not men. So think about your own faith. Ask yourself the question, are you more concerned about what God thinks or about what other people think? Are you more concerned with what other people think about God or what they think about you? Remember, this sermon is all about building God's kingdom, displaying his kingdom and not ours. So, so what then does it look like for us to practice our faith for the praise of God and not man? What does it look like to have a God-oriented faith? I want to share today three things that are true of a God-oriented faith. And the first one is this, that a God-oriented faith is not always private. So maybe you find yourself asking the question as you hear Jesus talking in this passage, is Jesus saying that we should only practice our faith in secret? Should we never do any spiritual practices in front of others? Is it wrong to tweet a verse from the Bible? Should, should I delete all my photos on Facebook of our community group service project? Should I never tell a friend that I prayed for them? Have you ever asked, had someone ask you to give a donation on GoFundMe? When you do that, you can either post your gift publicly or privately. So should it only be private? Should you never report your giving to the IRS for tax benefits? 
somebody might hear about it. Well, in short, the answer to that question is no. Jesus' main goal in this passage is not that we should do everything in private, but maybe you're thinking, well, how do you know that, Jason? It seems like very clearly that's what Jesus just said. Well, principle number one of studying the Bible is to study the Bible in context. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to have been a Christian for a long time. All you have to do is grab a copy of the Bible, read it, and reread it. And if you have a question, ask, well, what is the author saying in these verses? What is he saying in the verses before? What is he saying in the verses after? Has this author written other letters or other books of the Bible? What did he say there? So how do we know that Jesus didn't mean that we should always practice our faith in private? Well, that would conflict with what he said earlier in this very same sermon, and Brad taught about this in week two of our series. Look with me at Matthew chapter five, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus very clearly says in this passage that we should want people to see our good deeds. But why? Well, ultimately, so that God would get glory, not us. So that God would be praised and not us. The Apostle Paul says something very similar to his protege, Timothy, when he talks about the importance of character. He was writing to Timothy, training him for pastoral ministry, and he talked about how his influence would follow not just what he taught, but how he lived out his faith. Look with me at 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. He says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. People are going to see our example. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Why? So that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul very clearly here says that people should see our progress. They should see our example. And why? Because their faith may either be built or be destroyed by how you live out your faith. Now, as I reflect on that, I find that very convicting. Well, Christianity is all about faith in Jesus and not faith in his followers, the faith of his followers may cause some to lose faith. Think about your own example. If people were to follow your example, would they be more likely to turn toward God or to turn away from God? What about the people who are closest to you, your friends, your roommate, your spouse, your coworkers, your children? Is your example inspiring them to seek God, to find God, to follow Jesus? So what does a God-oriented faith look like? Jesus' main point here is not that our faith should always be private, but that it should be done for the praise of God and not men. And while a God-oriented faith is not always private, Jesus does make clear, number two, that a God-oriented faith is always active. Again, Jesus' point here was that we are to not practice our faith to be seen by others, but he still assumes that we should be practicing our faith. He doesn't say if you practice your faith. He says when you practice your faith. Look at verse two. He says, when 
you give to the needy. Verse five, he says, when you pray. Verse 16, he says, when you fast. So that begs the question, is your faith active? Do you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but then you fail to do the things that he has said? In this passage, Jesus is addressing two types of hypocrisy. One, explicitly, he says that we shouldn't practice our faith to be seen by others, but the other one is implied, that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you don't practice your faith, you are a hypocrite. So if your coworkers found out you were a Christian, would that be a surprise to them? If, if we could somehow catalog or track a history of our life, what would it say about us? Actually, I don't think this is that hard. Uh, what, I want to do an exercise with you. So if you have a phone, I want you to pull it out today and hold it up. I want to see your phone. Let me see your phones. Okay. Show me your phone. And then I want you to swipe up or open it up, unlock it. And the next thing I want you to do is hand your phone to the person next to you. Okay. You don't actually have to do that. But if you were to hand your phone to the stranger next to you, to your parents, to your girlfriend, to your spouse, and they were to start looking through your phone, what would they find out? Did you know that Google tracks our location everywhere we go? So, so what if they could see your location history? What would they think? What if they looked at your calendar history, where you have been investing your time? What if they were to look at your financial apps and see where you've been spending your money? What would they think? What would they think if they looked at your text message history or your YouTube history, your social media history, your Netflix history, your browser history, your Bible app history, your screen time history? What would that say about you? Would it be obvious that your life is all about Jesus? Would it be obvious that you are trying to build his kingdom and not your own? And while Jesus here has called us to do a lot more than the things he lists in this passage, what about practicing our faith with the three things he mentioned here? Do you give to the needy? Do you pray? Do you fast? I could say a lot about all three of these things, but I want to focus on the last one, fasting. And when I talk about fasting here, I'm not talking about fasting from TV or chocolate or social media. I'm, I'm talking about what Jesus is talking about here, which is fasting from food. In the spring, our teaching team, we were breaking down who's going to teach which passage from the Sermon on the Mount this summer, and I specifically chose this passage. And the reason why I chose this passage is because when it comes to fasting, I am a hypocrite. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not a hypocrite because I love to brag to other people about my fasting, uh, I don't, I'm not a hypocrite because I make it very obvious when I fast. I'm a hypocrite because when it comes to fasting, before I put this message together, the amount of times I could count uh, that I have fasted could be listed on two hands. And at the risk of a little bit uh, too much information here, if it wasn't for having to fast for a colonoscopy a couple months ago... Uh, I could have probably counted them on one hand. <laughs> now, my role at Northridge is our pastor of spiritual formation. My role is, at, is to help us to not just show up to church on Sunday, but to put our faith in practice. And yet, if there's one spiritual discipline that I'm failing at miserably, it would be this practice, the practice of fasting. But from what I know, I am not alone. 
When it comes to fasting, for many of us, this practice is non-existent. And yet Jesus didn't say, if you fast, he said, when you fast. And while nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to fast, Jesus does say in Matthew 9, 15, that his disciples will fast. So, so why do we struggle with fasting? Is it because we don't know why? Is it because we don't know how? Is it because it's hard? Is it because we love food? Well, I think the answer is probably a little bit of all of those, but Jesus doesn't answer those questions in this passage. He just assumes that we will fast. This week in our A Little Better podcast, we dive into some answers to those questions. But a God-oriented faith, it's always active. It gives, it prays, and it fasts. But it's not just active. Lastly, a God-oriented faith is always about God. Again, Jesus' main point in this passage is not how to give or how to pray or how to fast. His point is that we should practice all three of these things for the praise of God and not men. Which, which brings us back to our struggle from the beginning, our struggle with approval addiction. If we were to examine our motives, if we were to look at why do we do the things that we do, what would our motives reveal? What about your motives with giving to the needy or helping out others? In verse two, Jesus said, we should give without trumpeting it before others. So if nobody knew that you gave a Saturday every month to help out with one of our local Beyond partners, would you keep doing it? Or let's dig a little deeper. What if someone else got credit for a way you helped someone in need? Would you tell them? And if you didn't tell them, how would you feel inside? In verse three, Jesus says that we should give without letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. So again, he's digging deeper. Not only should we not practice our faith to be seen by others, but we shouldn't see it either. Now, obviously, we can't just shut off our brain and forget what our body is doing in the moment, but I think he's helping us to look at our motives. Am I serving those in need so I can feel better about myself or so that I can please God? Well, what about our motives in prayer? Look with me again at verse five. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus, again here, is calling out those who love to pray publicly. Now, he's not calling them out because they love to pray publicly, but because they love to be seen by others. There's two kinds of people that I think he's addressing in this message, and we both struggle with the same thing. So, so which category would you put yourself in? There are the people who are comfortable praying in front of others, and then there are those of us who are uncomfortable praying in front of others. Maybe you hate to pray in front of others. Maybe you've never prayed in front of another person before. I get this tension. When I am meeting with my community group and we break up to pray and I'm praying with all the guys, what often happens in our prayer time is that as we begin to pray, as the guys in my group are praying, instead of me listening and agreeing in with them as they pray, I spend the whole time they are praying thinking about what am I gonna say when I pray? 
and I'm a little bit anxious until I figure out what I'm going to say. And if I can tie a scripture passage to what I'm going to pray about, well, then I actually start to feel excited about jumping in to pray. But the problem is, the whole time we've been praying, I've been focusing on what I'm going to sound like instead of praying with my group members. Now, maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You don't like praying in front of others. Maybe you've never prayed in front of another person. You're not even sure what to say in prayer, and so you don't say anything at all because you fear that what you say might sound dumb. In verse six, Jesus says that our prayers are to be focused on our heavenly father, not on what other people think. That the primary focus is that God will hear us, not that we say the right words. No, now, no matter how long you have been praying, maybe you'd say, you know, I've only whispered prayers to a God I'm not even sure exists. Or maybe you've been praying public prayers since you were two years old, your parents had you praying at the dinner table. No matter how long we've been praying, there are times when we are all at a loss for what to say when we pray. And in verses 9 through 14, Jesus gives us a starting point. He gives us a model for prayer. He says, this then is how you should pray. Now what he doesn't say here is that these are the words that you should repeat or recite every time you pray. He also doesn't say this is the only way that you should pray. He simply says, this then is how you should pray. So if you're not sure what to say when you pray, if you're looking for a fresh way to pray, this is an amazing place to start. Verse nine, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So whether you're comfortable with prayer or you're not sure where to start, this is an amazing place to begin. And it's a prayer all about God. It's about praising God's name. It's about seeking God's kingdom. It's about asking for God's help. It's about seeking God's forgiveness. It's a prayer all about God, building his kingdom and not our own. Lastly, what about our motives in fasting? If you're like me and you've struggled with fasting at all, maybe you, you ask yourself the question, well, what is fasting and why should I even fast? John Piper defines fasting as a whole body hunger for God. David Mathis emphasizes that Christian fasting is not about going without, but getting. It's about who we want more of. So, so why should we fast? What is the goal behind fasting? Well, the goal of fasting is that we would get more of God. It's a way of teaching our whole selves to hunger for God more than anything else. Jesus here was calling out the hypocrites because they wanted the approval of others more than anything else. Piper goes on to say that fasting means love for God, a hunger for God. With their actions, the hypocrites are saying they have a hunger for God, but on the inside, they are really hungry to be admired and approved by others. That's the God that satisfies them. Again here, Jesus is digging at our hearts. He's exposing our motivations. Is our desire to be seen by others, to be noticed by others, to hear their approval, to be liked by others? Or is our greatest desire for the approval of God? So today, whose kingdom are you trying to build? 
Why do you do what you do? Jesus' answer to our approval addiction is the practice of secrecy. As I said in the beginning, for all my life, I've struggled with what people think about me. And one of the biggest ways that that has played itself out in my life is the fear of public speaking. Now, you might be thinking, Jason, you just preached a message to a room full of hundreds of people. There's hundreds more watching online and in Webster. I thought you said that you fear public speaking. Well, I have, and I still do. I remember when I was a kid struggling with my speech. When I was in elementary school, I met with a speech pathologist. I still remember walking down the hallway in my elementary school, going into a room and having her have me repeat and recite the same word again and again. I remember sitting around the dinner table growing up and my dad saying, Jason, speak clearly, enunciate your words, articulate your words, stop mumbling. My dad was the lead pastor of a large church and every Sunday I would hear him teach. I was inspired by his faith. I was inspired by his teaching. I wanted God to use me and yet I was afraid to get in front of other people. I remember taking a speech class when I was in high school and getting in front of a room of 20 students. My legs were shaking. My heart was pounding as I got up to try to deliver that speech. There's been moments in my life where I have been nervous about uttering a word in a small group Bible study. And yet for the last six years, I've been the pastor of community groups here at Northridge Church. The past few weeks, I've been preparing to deliver this message on practicing our faith for the praise of God and not the praise of men. And yet the whole time I've been preparing this message has been the fear that this sermon is going to bomb, that you won't like it. And at the heart of that fear is the concern for what people will think about me, not what they will think about God. One of the ways that I have battled the fear of public speaking is to remind myself of the goal. Is my goal to inspire faith toward God? If I focus my attention, if I focus uh, my uh, focus on having people to see God, to know God, to see him and not myself, then I find that my fears subside. You see, it is a weighty thing to live for the approval of others. It is an exhausting lifestyle to be consumed with what people think about you. When we spend our whole life trying to manage our image, then we often feel like imposters. We're worried that people might find out about the real us. But when our life is oriented toward God, we can rest in our acceptance by God through Jesus. We are freed from the burden of what people think, how good we look, how good we sound, how skilled we are. We can serve God without the pressure of performing because we're building his kingdom and not our own. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd help us to forget ourselves and focus our attention on expanding your kingdom. God, we pray today that we would praise your name, that we would seek your kingdom, that we would ask for your help, that we would seek your forgiveness. God, I pray that today your kingdom might be built and not ours. In your name, Jesus, amen.